Romans, huh? For Christmas Day? Why not? Well, this morning we do have the joy of celebrating the most famous son ever born in human history, the son of Mary, the son of Joseph, the son of David, the son of God. In reality, every Lord's Day is an opportunity to celebrate the Son of God, but Christmas is a particularly focused time in which the entire world talks about and actually sings about the Savior, Jesus Christ. Christmas is not a holiday that the Bible commands us to celebrate. Uh, There's no particular day marked off anywhere in the Scripture that says we need to celebrate a Christmas day like this. But for Christians, it is another opportunity, one in which the entire culture is actually listening again to one of the most miraculous events of all time. And that miraculous event is not merely that a virgin conceived and bore a child, though that in and of itself should catch everyone's attention. It is far more than that. As I mentioned last night in our candlelight service, two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, provide us with the historical details behind the birth of Jesus Christ. But it is really the letters of the New Testament that begin to unpack the meaning and the significance of those historical events. And we could also say that really the entirety of the Bible All of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are providing incredibly rich detail that shed volumes of significance and meaning into that single event when Jesus was born. But I want to focus our attention this morning on another of the letters of the New Testament that actually unpacks the significance of the incarnation. And when we say the incarnation, we're talking about that event of where God takes on human flesh, eternally takes on human flesh, so that today as he resides in heaven, he is truly God and truly human forever. I want us to focus on this New Testament letter that is perhaps the most theologically dense of all of the New Testament letters that we have, the book of Romans, and just a portion of it, the very beginning, the introduction, introductions that we oftentimes skim over so quickly because we want to get down into the meat of the letter and the meat of the matter of which it's addressing. But I want us to linger for a moment on these phrases that we find here because it really does unpack for us the significance of the incarnation. As we see in Paul's opening words in the book of Romans, not only do his words unveil the themes that you would find in the rest of the book of Romans, he actually focuses our attention on the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation, its connection to the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately the primary themes of the entire Bible, which is the gospel of God. Do you see that theme in verse 1? When Paul introduces himself, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of God. That actually helps us to focus our attention on the Son whom we celebrate. Now, I want you to notice before we dive into it, just these few introductory phrases that Paul uses to describe himself in the book of Romans. He refers to himself here as a bondservant. Literally, he is a slave. We shouldn't mince words. This is a word that means he is a slave who has no will of his own, no desires that he could have of his own free will. He has taken his free will and made it subservient to that of another. Primarily, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Christ meaning the Messiah, Jesus, the human being, Jesus, who is that Messiah? Paul looks at himself and sees nothing of himself individually, only that which comes under subservience to Jesus Christ. I think for many people, that in and of itself is not a moniker many of us would want to wear. Not in our world, especially not in our world today in the United States of America. Slavery is something we don't want to talk about. 
But Paul uses one of the most strong words in all of the New Testament to say, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Furthermore, he says he's called as an apostle. The word called simply refers to his vocation. How does he see himself in his livelihood? What his life meaning is all about? His calling in life is to be an apostle, which simply means one who is sent out by God, a representative of God, a slave under Christ Jesus, and one whose entire vocation of life is to represent God. You wonder... How we view ourselves, if I was to ask you, tell me a little bit about yourself, you would probably tell me something about your vocation because you see your identity many times in what you do for a living. And yes, you may have all kinds of specialized training in things like finance or farming or construction or data manipulation or teaching or music, serving food, etc. But all of those things of which you're trained in which you make a living really only enhance your ability to have as a vocation the service of God. That's how Paul sees himself. A slave of Christ Jesus called in vocational kinds of ministry to represent Jesus. But it's this next phrase that captivates me. He says he is set apart for the gospel of God. These words that are used here are words that are unique in the Bible, to be set apart. That is a phrase, set apart, is a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe something that was set aside to be only used for the purposes of God. He chooses this particular phrase because he wants to use all of the imagery of the Old Testament to say, I am a vessel that is being completely set aside from everything that is common and ordinary and normal to be set aside for the purposes of God alone, for the purposes of the gospel of God. That phrase, set aside, is used a number of times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Was used of firstborn men, firstborn beasts in Exodus 13, 12, that were set aside only for God's use. The first fruits offering of Numbers 15, 20 was set aside for God. The Levites, a tribe in Israel, uniquely belonged to God as his inheritance, set aside only for the purposes of God. Israel, as God's special possession, Leviticus 20, 26, was set aside from all the other nations of the earth simply for the purposes of God. That's how Paul sees himself. Enslaved to Jesus, vocationally his representative, and completely set aside for all of the holy purposes connected to the gospel of God. Jeremiah said of himself in Jeremiah 1.5, or he refers to God's call on his life about himself, before I formed you in the womb, the Lord says to Jeremiah, I knew you and before you were born, I set you aside. I consecrated you. You were set aside. Acts 13.2 used again of people being set aside while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to the church in Antioch, set apart for me, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to do. It's interesting that this word set apart, it's the Greek word aphorizo, is the word from which the Pharisees took their title. Aphorizo is the root word for the Pharisees who viewed themselves as those who were set aside from everyone else to the law of God. And one of Paul's great titles that he wore before he became a Christian was that of a Pharisee. He viewed himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. This would have been a title he knew well, and yet there's new meaning to this for Paul. He's not set aside among Israel simply to be a Pharisee. He's now set aside to represent one thing and one thing only, the gospel of God. He's set apart 
by God. It's a passive verb that meaning someone else set him aside. He didn't choose this on his own. God set him aside for this. And he has been set aside from eternity past up to the very present when he's writing this. He's set aside by God. Commentator John Murray says about this term, and how it's used here, no language could be more eloquent of the decisive action of God and of the completeness of Paul's resulting commitment to the gospel. All bonds of interest and attachment alien or extraneous to the promotion of the gospel have been cut asunder. And he is set apart by the investment of all his interests and ambitions in the cause of the gospel. That's powerful language that Paul uses here. God has set me aside for his own gospel. You ever think in those terms in regard to your life? Christianity can become such a mild moniker that we identify with. Do you believe in God? Sure, I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I think he was historical. I think he, he did great things. I think he was a great teacher. I think he's the best among all the teachers. I, I, I think he's a savior. I wouldn't mind him saving me. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity is viewing yourself and all that you do, all that you are to the very core of your being as being set apart by God uniquely by his hand, for his pleasure, set apart for the purposes of his gospel. Every avenue of your life leads towards that. The decisions you make are made because you've thought of them and how they reflect on Christ and his gospel. The things you decide not to do, you you don't do because you don't want them to reflect poorly on what means most to you, and that is the gospel of God. That's Christianity. When Paul introduces himself, he simply uses the normal terminology that all of us essentially should use of our life, that we're enslaved to Christ, our vocation in life is to represent him, and we, by nature of the gospel and for the purposes of the gospel, have been set aside from everything else in the world so that all of our ambitions are wrapped up in that gospel. The gospel of God is an important term in the book of Romans. It's actually used as bookends to the letter. It's found here in verse 1, and it's also found at the end of the letter in chapter 15, verse 16. Where Paul says he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It's like bookends to this book, at the beginning and at the ending. What is the book of Romans about? He's just told you. The gospel of God. And your whole life is centered on that one thing, the gospel of God. It is the gospel that has God as its center point, a concept that in, when I listen to many people today, it seems to be losing meaning that the gospel belongs to God and that the gospel is about God. John Piper wrote a book some time ago called God is the Gospel. Consider a few words from that book that he says that I think are helpful for us. It is stunning how seldom God himself is proclaimed as the greatest gift of the gospel. When I say that God is the gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, and listen to this carefully. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth, 
and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? We are willing to be God-centered, it seems, Piper says, as long as God is man-centered. We are willing to boast in the cross as long as the cross is a witness to our worth. Who then is our pride and joy? When Paul says that he has been set apart by God for the gospel of God. It is the gospel that not only tells us about God, it is not only the gospel that comes from God, it is the gospel that gives us God. And you have to wonder, does that actually thrill you or are you indifferent to that? Are you indifferent to that? Is, is heaven to you just the place where you get the things you've always wanted, irrespective of the centrality of God? Or is heaven all about him? Because you have studied, you know him, you anticipate him, you love him, you long for him. He is the epitome of everything your soul desires and you cannot wait to see him face to face. The gospel that delivers God as the gift and good news and not necessarily things like well-heated sanctuaries, padded pews, good friends, a good living, children who always mind you. Ha! Preachers who always entertain Music according to your personal taste. Church members who always dote on you. It's the good news that gives you God. Despite whatever else happens in life, you have the good news that you have God. Leon Morris, a well-known commentator, said, God is the most important word in this epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, and the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There is nothing like it elsewhere. It's telling today. Today. Of all days, Sunday, December 25th, Sunday, that there's consideration that we would just not have a gathering on the Lord's Day. That's been a hot topic among Christians. It is every time a Sunday falls on Christmas Day, there's this Twitter conversation that flares up. The internet explodes with Christians talking about big productions on Christmas Eve. And so we want to give everybody a day off on the Lord's Day. We don't need to wrangle about that. We, we, we don't even need to think about that. Because this is, this is not about having time off. This is not about just being with our families and all of the things that we typically associate this day is really about what God has done and who he is. Of course we would gather. It's, it's the Lord's day. And he means most to us above everything. I wanted to linger on those first few phrases because Paul sees his entire identity wrapped up in that. Set apart for the gospel of God. And, and the reality is, verses 2 through 6 in this chapter, all are an explanation of what the gospel of God actually consists. What is the gospel of God? Now, for our purposes this morning, on this Lord's Day, 
I want you to see that the gospel of God cannot be separated from the Son. The gospel of God is all about the Son of God. Do you see it in verse 3? It is concerning His Son. The gospel of God is all about the Son of God. It is not God without Christ. It is not Christ without God. It is God who has given us Christ so we could have God. So very much, these verses are about the Son of God whom we celebrate on this day. And so just for a brief time, I want us to think through what this passage celebrates about the Son. What does it say about the Son who we celebrate today, who is the very gospel of God? What does it say about him? Let me unpack just five different descriptions of Jesus, the very Son that we celebrate at Christmas. The Son we celebrate, first of all, is the Son who was promised. He is the Son who was promised. You see it in verse 2, which He promised. The gospel of God is what He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is a really profound statement. Where do we actually find the content of the gospel of God? According to this, it's in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, how important is the link between the Bible as we have it in our hands and the, and the gospel? You can't have the gospel without the Scriptures. The gospel was actually promised beforehand. Those, those two words, promised beforehand, are really one word in the Greek. They're used two times in the New Testament, here and in 2 Corinthians 9.5. Promised beforehand. They were marked out ahead of time. They were given to us as a promise long ago through, he says, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Long ago, God used spokesmen, his prophets, and the writings that they produce, the Scripture, all of that points to one thing. Where is the gospel housed? In the Old Testament. We don't normally think of it that way. The gospel in our minds is usually the New Testament. He says, no, the gospel of God was actually promised to us long ago by prophets speaking long ago in Holy Scriptures that have already been recorded. The Old Testament is the record of the gospel. One of the things that tells us is that the gospel is not new. The gospel is old. It's very old. It didn't come up yesterday. It's not like pop singers and politicians and political voices that rise up one day and are gone the next, that have influence for a season and are gone they're not like our jobs that come and go. They're not like friends that come and go. The gospel is something old, not stodgy, not something that we have to blow the dust off of, and, and not a patchwork of people just adding things and hooking things onto it all the time, but a consistent record of the faithful promises of God that were made long ago and put in writing so we could all see them and interact with them and understand what's going on in the here and now in regarding what God wants to do. The gospel is about the Son of God who was promised long ago because everything that the Old Testament is pointing to is pointing us to ultimately, in its trajectory, in its focus, to the coming of the Son of God. Everything. Now, the fullness of the gospel is not found in the Old Testament alone. That's his point. It was promised, and now we're beginning to feel and see the reality of that promise. It's what Peter said in his epistle in 1 Peter 1, when he described our salvation he says, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them 
that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You remember when Jesus had been raised from the dead, he was walking with a few unnamed disciples on a road toward the city of Emmaus, and they had no idea who was walking with them. Their eyes had been blinded by the providential move of God over them to not recognize that it was the Lord himself, the resurrected Lord who was walking with them. And as they walked, he began to unpack how it was that the Old Testament actually was pointing them in all of its trajectory to the Messiah. And when he sat down with them in a home and broke bread, the Lord providentially opens their eyes and they realize that the man who had been walking with them was the one that the entirety of the Old Testament had predicted, who they had seen crucified on a cross and now was alive. He was that one predicted. What an astounding conversation that would have been to think back on. He was predicted in the Old Testament. We read of that over and over last night. Those famous Christmas verses that we quote all the time from Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us. This is the prediction of the gospel of God. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Listen to what happens to this son. And the government will rest on his shoulders. He will rule over everyone. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. His name will be called Mighty God. Who is this son? His name will be called Eternal Father. He is the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Friends, that actually is the gospel of God. That's actually a record of the gospel. Or Isaiah 53 that pointed us to the servant, the slave of God who would give his life as a ransom in place of other people to bring us to God. He would be the lamb that would be slaughtered. Isaiah 53 is a perfect depiction of the gospel itself to bring sinful mankind to God. The gospel's rooted in the Bible, promised in the Old Testament. You do know the gospel begins in Genesis 1. It begins in Genesis 1 when God makes a perfect world with people who would perfectly reflect his glory. And this was his intention and this was his desire to have perfect communion and fellowship with these people he has made in a world that supports such completion and perfection. But Genesis 3 reminds us of sin that entered and spoiled the image of God in humanity and the world in its perfection and everything tumbled towards chaos and death and destruction. But even in that destructive chapter of Genesis 3 is the promise of the gospel, isn't it? In the rehearsal of the curse, did you not hear that the seed of the woman with his heel would crush the head of the serpent? What did that mean? There would be a human being to come who would stop all of the deception, who would end all of the strife, and all of the effects of sin would end. That, in Genesis 3, is a rehearsal of the gospel in the Old Testament. When Abraham was given a promise in Genesis chapter 12, that from him would come a nation, and through that nation, all of the nations of the earth would receive saving blessing. That is the gospel. 
in successive generations to come when Israel was founded and Israel began to grow and kings were given to Israel and prophets came to Israel. Every patriarch and every king ultimately who should have represented God failed in their representation of God, didn't they? All of them, even the great one like David, why? None of them were the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. None of them, they should be representing God. They should be pointing us to God. Israel should be pointing the nations to God. But all of them have failed so that one who comes and begins to live perfectly according to everything that God has revealed. And from his hand, he begins to restore things so that they begin to look like Genesis 1 in perfection. And he removes demonic influence so that it looks more like a day seven of creation. You should be looking to that one. He seems to have in his hands and in his, in his mind and from his mouth the words that fulfill everything that the Old Testament was predicting. The Old Testament had the gospel of God in it. And when you understand the Old Testament, you see Jesus perfectly for who he is. And you see the fulfillment of it. It was promised. You know, I wonder many times, I think, why, why did God design it this way so that so many generations of people dwelt in such spiritual chaos and darkness? You think through all of the effects of sin and all of the disasters that have happened because of sin. Why did God let it go for so long? Why does he continue to let it go on and on and on for so many generations? Why does he do that? Well, maybe it is so that humanity can see how much they need him. Maybe. But I think it's more than that. If it were you and me, and we were at the head of this story, and we were running it, we wouldn't let it go on for generation after generation. You know what we would do? We would quit. We'd say, so you, you don't want this? You don't want me? You're going to be unfaithful to me? I've promised this for you, and, and you discard it so easily? You know what all of these generations show us about God and his promise? He's faithful. He's not going to quit. He's actually going to fulfill everything that he promised to do for his people. Not one promise that he has made to any of them will ever fail. Any of them. All will be fulfilled. The son we celebrate is the epitome of everything promised. Your mind should dwell on that for a while on Christmas. God is faithful. Sometimes you can't see it. Think back on human history. Think back on what he's done. Think back on how faithful he has been. He has made a promise. He's kept every detail of that promise up to this point, which should tell you every detail to come will be, will be fulfilled as well. He's faithful. The son we celebrate is the son that was promised. And God doesn't, God doesn't fail in his promises. Secondly, another description we see of the son that we celebrate today is that the son we celebrate is the son who is king. The son who is king. It's emphasized for us in verse 3. The gospel of God is promised, verse 2, the gospel of God is also concerning his son. It's concerning his son who was born. Right there is the incarnation. Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. One of those promises that were made in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, was the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. David desired to build a house for God, a place where God would be highly exalted in worship. 
It would be the centerpiece of Israel in which all the nations could come and see the grandeur and the glory of God and the sacrifices would be housed there that pointed people to the need of a Savior. His heart was right. It was all good. But it wasn't a house that God wanted him to build, not an earthly one. 2 Samuel chapter 7 reminds us of the promise that was made to David. It's, it's not a temple, David, not an earthly one. Here's the promise made to you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. That was Solomon, wasn't it? And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You say, well, wait a minute, Solomon's throne wasn't established forever. Well, not Solomon himself, but his throne would be. And so it says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me, which is really interesting language. The king, and this was viewed by many, many nations, viewed their king to be an actual representation of divinity. The king was a, a son, viewed as a son who represented God to the people on the earth. That's what a king was to be. The king in Israel was to be a son to God, to represent God to the people in his obedience to the word of God completely. So, I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, referring to Solomon, I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But, listen to this, my loving kindness will not depart from him. I'll be faithful. There's a promise that I've made. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house, David, your house, David, and your kingdom, David, shall endure before me forever. Despite the sin of successive kings that would come and follow after David, his house, his throne would be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This was a promise made to David that there would come from him in his line, sitting on that throne, a king. A king. It had to be one from the line of David. David was the one specifically chosen by God. His line specifically chosen by God to be the son, the ultimate son of God, who would obey all of what God had written and show everything perfectly as God has intended. This is why many of the Old Testament prophets would foretell that the ultimate Messiah would come from the line of David because of this prophecy, Isaiah 11.1. 1, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, Jesse being David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Isaiah 11.10, then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Jeremiah 23.5, behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. All the gospel writers all of them refer to Jesus as the son of David, in the line of David. The two genealogical records that we have of Jesus both point him and root him in the line of King David. Luke 1.32 reminds us he will be great, that is the Messiah, Christ, Jesus will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. Luke 169, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Luke 2, 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of whom? David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Why all of this? Only this man, Jesus, could sit as king on the throne of David and rule. Only this one. But I want you to notice something that Paul emphasizes concerning the son who was born a descendant of David. According to the flesh, 
as a human. He was born as a human being. We sometimes discount the perfections of Jesus. We say, ah, well, he was God. Yeah, if I were God, I could get over my sin too. Well, if you were God, you would never sin, right? Yeah, it would help. He didn't overcome his sin by relying upon his deity, though. He overcame sin. He obeyed God in his humanity, in his flesh, perfectly. So he could be the perfect son of David. So he could be the king who sits on that throne forever. All of the gospel accounts point us to that reality, and we should note the Davidic throne still awaits Jesus to come and sit upon it on the earth. We still anticipate the reigning Christ to come and return to the earth to sit on that throne and reign over all of the nations as it was promised. A baby in swaddling clothes? We celebrate a son who is actually the king He is reigning right now over all things, bringing everything to a point of completion when he will return, sit on the throne, and rule in person forever. The son who we celebrate is the king. (coughs) Third, the son we celebrate is powerful. Look at verse 4. (coughs) pardon me he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord declared the son of God with power actually the word declared is better translated as appointed it's used eight other times in the New Testament they all are translated as appointed he was appointed by God the son of God with power Interestingly, this does not mean he was appointed the son by the power of the resurrection. That's not it. He was appointed the son of God with power. Son of God with power is like a title. Son of God with power, the powerful son of God, he was appointed to be that. Now, it was not his resurrection that made him the son of God. He had always been the son of God. It was the Son of God who was declared in the resurrection for us to see with our eyes that he is the Son of God in power, and the resurrection proved him to be what he always was. He is the Son of God in power because of the resurrection of the dead. It declared him to be whom God appointed him to be. There is no greater power that you could imagine than to have the resurrection from death to life. He overcame what is so final. What is so compelling to us is death. Who overcomes it? It awaits every one of us, and no one of us can stop it. And yet he has been declared. He has been appointed the Son of God in power by being raised from the dead. God raising his son from the dead, giving him a place of complete, total power. Again, we love manger scenes. But the son we celebrate is a king enthroned, promised, and he has all power in his hands. He's alive, living, ruling, reigning, And he's coming. No single event could better describe Jesus as the all-powerful one than to overcome what none of us can seem to overcome, and that's death. He's the Son of God who is all-powerful. Let me show you another description of the Son in verse 4. He's the Son who is anointed. He's the Son who is anointed He was resurrected from the dead, and it says here, according to the spirit of holiness. 
It's a reference to the Holy Spirit's role in appointing Christ as the Son of God in power. It's as if the Spirit is the anointing of this king to be the most powerful king in all the universe. The Spirit himself has anointed him to be the Son of God who is all-powerful, the one who is the long-awaited-for promised king. It's as if the entire trinity is declaring this son to be the epitome of the gospel of God. One final note and description about the son that we celebrate today is found in verse 4. The son we celebrate is also the son who is sovereign. He is sovereign. What is his title? Do you see it at the end? Jesus Christ our Lord. Every word is emphatic. Every word is important in his title. Jesus, truly human. The one we can relate to, the one who relates to us, the one who overcame sin on our behalf, the one who actually died, physically died for us. Jesus, who is Messiah, the Christ the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would bring saving blessing through the nation of Israel to all the nations of the earth, the Messiah, the root of David, the one to sit on the throne of David forever, the Messiah. And he is Lord. He's Lord. He rules over all things. He has the right to rule over all things. He governs all things. As John 1 tells us, he was the one who created all things. It all exists for him, by him. He's sovereign. He rules it all. You know what? It's so fascinating to me to think about that first Christmas when Christ was born when Mary and Joseph were in that little front room of the house where the, all the animals were kept and there was this baby, you know what they knew in their minds? Everything we just said. You know what kept going over and over in their minds? That this little baby that we're staring at is the one generations have been expecting. This was Genesis 3 in our hands. This, this is the sovereign Lord who breathed life into our lungs. This was the God who spoke and the entire universe came into being. This, this is him. This is the one who is actually going to give his life a ransom for us. This is him. They knew that because they knew their Bibles. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the promises. When they the angel announced to Mary who was going to be in her womb. There was no missing who this would be. She knew it. When Joseph was told, don't cast Mary aside, he was told why. This is the Savior of the world. This is Emmanuel, God who has come to dwell among us. He knew exactly who this was. When the shepherds came, they understood the angelic message. This was the long-awaited-for Messiah who was the sovereign God. When Mary watched her son give up his life on the cross, she knew who that was, didn't she? She knew what was happening. Can you imagine that? And we take Christmas so flippantly so often. The son we celebrate is the son of promise. He's king. He's all-powerful. He's anointed with the spirit of God and he's the sovereign Lord over all things. Just a reminder before we finish Remember, Paul identified his entire identity as a slave, vocationally called to represent God, 
set apart in every aspiration of his life, set apart to represent this gospel. Do you see why? Do you see why? Do you see how valuable that is? Do you see how eternal that is? Do you see how worthwhile it is to have your entire identity wrapped up in celebrating and connection to this one single person? Then how is it that we live for ourselves? How do we live for trinkets of this earth? How do we live for something so vain when we have such wealth in the person of Christ? So on this Christmas day, Let's celebrate this son, this son who is our reigning Lord. And we're going to take of the Lord's table to remind ourselves we represent him and we anticipate his return. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this brief time of meditation on your word when we can think about our Savior and especially on a day like this. We can think about Christ and who he is and all that you have done for so many generations to bring us to this moment to know him. Lord, I pray for those in this room who are not disciples of Jesus that you would awaken their hearts Show them, convince them of the truthfulness of who King Jesus really is, the value of serving him, aligning all of life to him. I pray that you would help all of us to find our joy and our satisfaction in being a slave of the king what a gracious and glorious king to be enslaved to. What a generous and kind and righteous king to serve. Let all of our vocation be lived out as a service to represent him. Let us see all of our life as if it were divinely set aside apart from all of the common things of the earth to be a representation of the king of kings. I pray that you would remind us over and over of who our Savior is. And as we take these elements today and remind ourselves that we belong to him because he paid the price for our life, I pray we do it with joy and with anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for your grace now as we commune with you over these elements that remind us of such a rich sacrifice on our behalf and the kindness of God, the eternal kindness of the eternal God. We thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.